Hey, it's Greg Brady. Thanks for checking out the Toronto Today podcast. Great to have you in, and I hope your weekend was awesome. It's Monday, January the 24th. We have a lot to get to, including, well, not the pandemic doesn't end with a thud, with a bang, or from people rushing out of their houses and proclaiming freedom. But it's going to be a gradual slide towards normalcy. And we talk about that in our 6 o'clock hour. The phrase, I'm done with COVID, started trending yesterday on Twitter. It's the first time I've seen it. And it used to be the argument uh, that was deemed a little ignorant and, well, you got to care about people around you. You can still do that by focusing protection and vaccination and boosting on those who need it. But there's also people in our own lives, whether it's our kids, whether it's people suffering from isolation, widows. We're looking out for old people from the beginning of the pandemic, and we should be looking out for them now, similarly, and not with a myopic COVID focus. Dr. Zane Chagla joins us as well. We talk about how the new oral medication is helping COVID patients, and we talk about a big reason why hospitalization numbers are a little bit deceiving right now. There's nowhere to take people who have recovered from COVID or other maladies that put them in hospital. Erica Eiffel on the show as well in our Fantastic Four involving racism in the sport of hockey. Again, Toronto Today starts now. we got uh, eight more days left in the month of January. Um, Every time, every single time, we say, uh, you know, something is two weeks away. It's two weeks until this. It's two weeks until that. It's three weeks until this. But I, but I promise you, I know that this is true. You know, until you can do this again and that again and you won't be impeded and you'll have this amount of freedom and liberty and this and that. Um, but I know that January only has eight days left. Now, they may vote later this week. You never know. And if enough powerful doctors come together who have, you know, side hustles, they may say that January is extended by 10 days. I don't know that they won't. You don't know that I won't come on, you know, middle of the week next week and go, Good morning, everybody. It's January 39th. How's everybody doing today? (laughs) Pretty crappy because it's the 39th day of this particular month. We got distractions at least. We got distractions at least over the weekend. Those NFL games were unbelievable. Look at, I'm not going to tell you that I'd rather be America than Canada for the whole length of the pandemic. I'm not saying that. Now, they had vaccines first, and and they kept schools more open. And um, when you want something to actually open, you're able to exert and tighten the screws and exert some political pressure. Here, we don't have that. We Like, think about Ontario. I need you to think about this for just a minute. We've got a right-leaning government, and the two, and, and they have locked us down intensely hard. Intensely hard. You can debate it. We all have. I understand the argument for it. I dismiss the argument for it. Don't say, but Greg, the hot hospitals and the, I got it. I do not believe that anything we did on January 3rd is having a notable impact. Not enough if for a cost benefit analysis of where we're at right now. Okay. We're operating from a June 2020 playbook. We're even operating from an April 2021 playbook, if you ask me. And I guess you did because you're listening right now, and I appreciate it. Yesterday online, the uh, phrase, I'm done with COVID, was circulating. It was a it was trending topic on, uh, on, the, on, the, on the tweet box. Now, remember, most people that aren't on Twitter at all are absolutely done with COVID. You know that that's true. You know that that's true because what's social media good for? Well, it's good for making contacts and, and getting news information. If someone said, hey, why, why are you on there? Well, I want to promote the show. I want to promote the good things we're doing here at this radio station and that our show does. I want to find uh, interesting audio that we can play for you that you might not have to pick up on your own. We're doing things so you don't have to. And we really appreciate you listening to us and letting us do that for you. You won't always agree. You won't always find every segment as enthralling as the last. But the concept is it's a show that arms you with what you need to know, makes you think, makes you – you're already smart by listening. I've always said that. That's patently obvious. You're in the – you know when you wrote your LSAT and you're like, well, I'm in the 77th percentile of people who wrote the LSAT at this time. Um, or you're in the 82nd percentile. Um, I wrote one LSAT and, and wrote a really good LSAT, but I never went to law school. My marks, uh, my marks were not as good as my LSAT. I need to focus as much eight months of the year as I did on writing that LSAT. But bottom lining it, you're in the 80th percentile already because you're listening, because you care, because you're informed. The amount of stuff I've heard from people 
who um, I don't think are regular, say, talk radio listeners or they, they don't check out stuff online regularly and what they think about COVID and their theories around it and their belief as to how you can get it or even how you can avoid it, holy jumping. You know it and I know it. You're, oh, my goodness. So I'm done with COVID started trending over the weekend. And uh, and I, I've heard it before. My, my friend Bruce Arthur said, to, hey, you know, you might be done with COVID, but COVID's not done with you. No, no, that's cool. I got it 100%. And I love Bruce. But I'm done is best the best way to put it is something uh, Dr. Vinny Prasad puts it, who's an uh, who works in oncology and is a uh, doctor in Massachusetts. And I'm done with COVID, as he writes, is short for continuing draconian restrictions at this moment is inflicting far more damage on vulnerable populations, especially kids, than benefit. And I will no longer participate in your inability to consider trade-offs. Boy, did that speak to me over the weekend. Maybe it speaks to you also. Our text line, by the way, 289-975-1640. 289-975-1640. Let me read it again because I love giving credit and shining the light when somebody comes up with something a lot smarter than I could. Continuing draconian restrictions at this moment is inflicting far more damage on vulnerable populations, especially kids, than benefit. And I will no longer participate in your inability to consider trade-offs. Bingo, bango. Can't say it better than that. Laura McKenna is a writer and she wrote on the weekend a story and I I don't know that it doesn't relate to where we're at right now in Toronto, Ontario, Canada, but she talked about the haves and have nots of the COVID world. Uh, Her column was called the United States of Anger, but I don't think we're any different here. And the concept is, is that there are people that want this to end very, very badly. We have drawn battle lines. And here's who the divisions are in her interpretation. Now, I'll read this from Laura. The new divisions are between people who are doing okay in this new COVID world and those who are not okay. The anger between these two groups is real and could have lasting political implications. And I think she's right about that. Okay. Um, We all got hit by a truck in March of 2020. Everything got uprooted. Everything was strange. We all went home. We all learned how to Zoom. We all bought new books and played board games and made bread and things like that. We did all those things. We tried to stay amused. There wasn't any sports on television. The movie theaters were closed. The gyms were closed. What were we going to do? Well, we reconnected. And in some ways, that was good. And we also realized what we wanted. We all had introspective moments. And we all had introspective months on the end. Um, There's still people operating that way. There's still people struggling to pick up the left foot and put it in front of the right foot. They're either scared or panicked or they've got anxiety or they're pretending to have any combination of all three because they're cool day law with working from home, living in their pajamas, not putting gas in the car every week and not moving forward. Maybe they're empty nesters. Maybe they never had kids. Maybe they're parents with kids. It really doesn't matter. There's not one demographic that classifies who the laptop class is necessarily. Barry Weiss used to write for the New York Times. She went on Real Time with Bill Maher the other night on Friday night, and she used to write for the Times. She was considered left-leaning, and then she said, well, I want to do my own thing. I can't really say the things I want to say anymore that I was able to before. And naturally, people said, oh, she's we, we, we've lost her. The left is, we, we reject what she wants now. She's complaining about this woke culture. Barry Weiss said this on Real Time with Bill Maher about COVID and where she's at right now. If you believe the science, you will look at the data that we did not have two years ago, and you will fi- find out that cloth masks do not do anything. You will realize that you can show your vaccine passport at a restaurant and still be asymptomatic and carrying Omicron. And you will realize, most importantly, that this is going to be remembered by the younger generation as a catastrophic moral crime. The city of Flint, Michigan, which is 80%, I think, minority students, has just announced indefinite virtual schooling. In the past two years, we've seen among young girls a 51% increase in self-harm. People are killing themselves. They are anxious. They are depressed. They are lonely. That is why we need to end it more than any inconvenience that it's been to the rest of us. I think it's, it's a pandemic. It's, it's like at this point, 
It's a pandemic of bureaucracy. It's a pandemic of bureaucracy. Where's the lie? So much is politics right now, and so much politics is guiding what we're doing. I understood it before. It's the first time. I told you on Friday, people said, what are you excited about to get back? Is it, is it dining out? Is it going to the gym? Is it, it's everything, because this was wrong on January 3rd. This was wrong. It's a firm belief of mine and many people connected to the political system in Ontario that Doug Ford didn't think he could win the election without closing things down to some extent, showing that he had the pulse on the medical community. But the plan was also, regardless of where it went, and Omicron was going to go up. We, we talked about this up like a laser beam, thud to earth like a rock. And it's starting to do that right now. It doesn't mean we're out of the woods. It doesn't mean there isn't a level of protection and shelter that we need to give our vulnerable population. And if you are vulnerable now, you know exactly what I'm talking about. But I'll tell you what, if I was vulnerable and I felt like I was holding the rest of society back from living and and making their own choices right now, I can't tell you how bad I'd feel inside. And you get a lot of people shout, that's ableism. I don't have time for your slogans two years into this. I'm absolutely always going to look out for those that need the greatest amount of help, mental, physical, emotional, you name it. We've had vaccines available for anyone five and over now for bordering on four and a half months. And you already know this, an unvaccinated teenager has considerably lower risk than a boosted adult over the age of 40. You know that that's true. Don't don't have any illusion about that. That hasn't changed with Omicron. Okay, so a lot of people are wanting to open up and return to normal life. I'm one of them. And we've got people that love being on Zoom that haven't lost a penny, that maybe they weren't that social to begin with. They don't want to meet in person with their boss. They don't want to put gas in the truck. They're good. They're good. They get to spend more time with their pets. They get more done in a day. There's no I can keep going. I can keep going. And what we did on January 3rd, I'll say it again with schools. Closing schools down was an absolutely imbalanced, cruel decision. School closures, they there was never a proper proportion to the risk that kids faced. This was all about adult anxiety. And my goodness, are we going to have work to do to get out of this? Confident households breed confident kids. We raise confident kids when we show our confidence. My kids aren't listening to this right now. I can assure you of that. They're asleep at 617. But that said, even if they were, they know I'm, I'm not all together all the time. They know I've had my moments where this has been just too catastrophic, a 23 months, to even contemplate all that we've lost. But I'm walking tall, and so is my wife, and they're walking tall as a result. That's the only way. That's the only way. And adult anxiety, your adult anxiety, that you if you want to inflict it on your kids, you do you. You do you. But right now, there is no data to back what happened on January 3rd. There is zero, zero calculated risk that's not put into some kind of risk-benefit machine that justifies what's going on right now and what's been happening the last 21 days. The virus isn't going away, and we're all going to be infected. More than once in our existence, you can dodge it with the N95 all you want the rest of this month and even into February. Feel free. But eventually you'll take the N95 off and we'll get another subsequent epidemic wave. This is what this is. We can focus on elderly and vulnerable people. We can protect them. We've given time for kids to get vaccinated. We can't force that upon parents. I'm adamant about that. You can't force a parent to vaccinate a five or six-year-old. We can't be having that. I think the best audio I heard on the weekend was from the Prime Minister of Ireland. He he absolutely said everything a world leader should say right now. Instead of threatening people, instead of the concept of coercing people, and believe me, again, as somebody that's got three shots in my arm and I might consider a four someday, I understand people saying, "Is is this the same Brady as six, seven months ago? No, it's not. Because the data... And the, the need to pivot is so patently obvious right now. But uh, the Irish prime minister uh, said this. Uh, he's, uh, by the way, uh, his name Michael Martin. He said this on the weekend as Ireland agreed to lift almost all of its COVID-19 restrictions. And I don't know if I've ever looked forward to one as much as I'm looking forward to this one. 
Humans, spring is coming. And I don't know if I've ever looked forward to one as much as I'm looking forward to this one. Humans are social beings, and we Irish are more social than most. As we look forward to this spring, we need to see each other again. We need to see each other smile. We need to sing again. Spring yeah. is coming. We need to do all that stuff. Spring is coming. That's the Prime Minister of Ireland. And people looked at Boris Johnson last week and he said and said he's gonna lift masks and he's gonna do this. He's embroiled in a political scandal. He's just it's a wag the dog. He's trying to distract. The Prime Minister of Ireland's not embroiled in a scandal. The Netherlands locked down as hard as anybody locked down three weeks ago. They're lifting almost all of their restrictions on Tuesday. It's over. It's over. And we have to become a phenomenal global partner and vaccinate the planet. Get every person who wants one across the world one dose. Let's hear our leaders talk about that. We can focus on elderly and vulnerable people. Absolutely. Take the boosters to where they are. We still have way too many people in Toronto without a booster shot who are vulnerable and who need one. Um, But we're all getting back to what we're doing and not much political on Twitter, anywhere else is going to stop us. We've talked about learning loss on the show. We've talked about masks and their impact in terms of young readers. I mentioned before my son, my second son was in speech therapy when he was two or three. He's a really quiet kid. Now, um, we, you know, we would crave for some quiet from him. He's 13. But but I could not have I, – I, I, this would have been a really difficult time um, to get him on track with reading. We did, you know, group sessions and, and you know, some, some speech therapy, the wheels on the bus, et cetera, et cetera. But for more and more kids to talk about phonics and being able to see teachers' faces, see lips form, it's massively, massively important. I'm really excited to have on our next guest. She's a professor of cognitive psychology uh, from uh, Royal Holloway University of London, and uh, we're happy that she's joining uh, Toronto today. She is Professor Cassie, Kathy Rastel. Uh, professor Rastel, thank you very much for making the time for me here in Toronto today and our listeners. I appreciate it. Yeah, sure. It's a pleasure. So some of what you've seen, it's interesting. I, I, you know, um, how you find someone on social media or via Twitter is almost through somebody. But I started reading some of the things you were talking about with, uh, you know, not just with learning loss, but with reading instruction. Um, What have you seen over the last, my goodness, 20 months that has really limited that 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 sweet spot where kids really do learn to get to read. Every parent worries about it, like I said, and uh, and it's it's not the most linear journey sometimes, but the pandemic has just thrown everything off course for so many parents. Well, I think that's right. You know, we think about, you know, becoming a, a reader, a skilled reader. This is not something that we're born to do. And we think it's a 10-year project. It's a 10-year project of instruction, dedication, and practice. But, you know, that comes in stages. And the very first stage of learning to read is, as you've just been saying, Greg, is your phonics. It's when you're learning how letters map onto speech sounds, you know, what the code for those letters is, how to interpret them, because they're just lines, squiggles, and dots. And if you have a situation where students or pupils have missed that initial instruction, then that's gonna have huge costs for all of the rest of their reading journey. And ultimately, uh, at the point at which they need to use reading to learn and to access the the rest of the curriculum. So the pandemic learning losses that we're seeing are extremely concerning. The UK did not put masks on younger kids. I wanna say it was 11 and over uh, that they they understood and, and they thought, well, those kids will be more social. Those are the kids that may potentially play sports. So even before vaccinations, they were cautious not to put an overemphasis on masking, good heavens, three, four, five, and six-year-olds. I don't I don't know what the number is where someone said, hey, at, at the worst of the pandemic and, and the most fearful we all were, where would you put the masks on? But it isn't at four and five. W- what was that? That was a real stand, I think, that, that you know, UK, you know, folks in the United Kingdom made to say that's way too young to put a mask on 35 hours a week. Yeah, I, and I think, you know, I, I know people have different views about masks, but I think that if there'd been a wider range of voices at the table, you know, people might have come to different conclusions around the world. And if we think about young children just learning to read for the first time, what's very important is that children are able to recognize different speech sounds and map those onto letters. So if you think about um, words like death and death, 
those sound very similar, right? The, the speech is fuzzy. Uh, the acoustic signal is imperfect. And, you know, what you find is if you put a, a mask on, that's going to further distort that speech. And additionally, children won't be able to see your mouth and your lips to disambiguate those speech sounds. So in that first vital stage of learning to read, you know, what's really crucial is that children can hear precise speech sounds and understand how they map onto letters. So I think certainly, I mean, there's there's not great research on this, but certainly mm-hmm. masks won't be helping that. Professor Kathy Rastel, our guest uh, from University of London on Toronto Today. The study that I saw, and I know you, you were commenting on it, um, was th- there's this new study that talks about the focus on phonics. And um, and the UK government's been urged to, to sort of drop an emphasis on synthetic phonics because there just isn't is evidence that that's the best way for kids to read. Unpack that, if you can, a little bit for me into greater depth. Yeah, well, I think that the the headlines that you may have seen d- didn't necessarily match the data. I mean, there are decades of evidence that suggests that uh, telling children explicitly how our writing code works, that is, how letters work and what they mean, that that's the best path in order to help them to become skilled readers. And that's what that's what systematic synthetic phonics is. It's telling kids how the how the code works as opposed to asking them to discover it for themselves. Decades of research showing that this is how you create uh, confident, skilled readers. And the alternative, leaving children just to discover this, is inefficient and ineffective for almost all children. And so, as you say, the UK has gone on a journey over the last decade of, of implementing this type of instruction in schools and actually assessing whether children have that foundational knowledge And what it's resulted in is hundreds of thousands of additional children each year having those foundational skills to go on to become skilled readers. There's a there's an article in The Guardian as well that I found over the weekend, and it's from April of last year. But I'll give you the headline. COVID may leave 12 million children unable to read. It documents more than half of all kids who turn 10 this year worldwide will hit that big milestone birthday and they can't read one sentence. And and as we said, there's that sweet spot and every parent knows where it is. It's sort of like, you know, it's like being in love. Like you feel it. If you feel it, it's probably happening with your kid. But that's usually between three and five and a half, six, where, where they just the light bulb goes on and everything starts to improve. But tell tell me uh, if you can't read by ten, it is your odds of getting it by eleven, twelve, thirteen are much much longer. Like like the 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 you know the trains already left the station so tragically for so many millions of these children. Well, I think that's right, and I think when we go back and look at the pandemic, we'll see these school closures and online school as one of the greatest mistakes. Because you think about it, if you've missed the initial instruction on how the written code works how that maps onto language, then you know that's gonna have huge costs all the way down the line. And if you get to be 10 years old and you can't read a sentence, you don't have the tools to read independently, you're never gonna develop the fluency, the text comprehension, the higher level skills that you need in order to use reading to learn. And as you progress through school, you won't be able to access your history curriculum or your English curriculum or your science curriculum. So I think it's essential at this stage that you know we're we're basically through the pandemic. What are the most effective methods to help children catch up? How do I we identify those who need more uh, most support, and how do we intervene quickly so that we don't have a generation of poor readers? Professor Kathy Rastel, our guest. One more for you. The uh, and and without getting overtly political, but obviously last week in in the UK it was announced face coverings. Um, the rules were going to change for face coverings and masks. There's not a legal requirement. What was the reaction of most parents here? I think you were hinting at it and I can tell you it's true. It's so politicized. It's outrageously politicized. It doesn't seem to be quite like that with with kids wearing masks to school. If you make it optional, some parents may say, yeah, I want my kid to keep wearing it. But some parents, again, for for learning loss, for reading, for seeing faces, for socialization, many parents can't wait, especially with vaccinated kids to say we did what we were supposed to do. Now I want my kids to get their life back. Yeah, I think, you know, Greg, I, I'm, I'm, I'm happy that it doesn't seem to have been as politicized in the UK. 
I, I did hear that that maybe masks won't be required, but it's not not really something we've thought about. And certainly in my children's school, I think that they've been wearing masks sometimes, but may, maybe not other times. Mm-hmm. My children are older, uh, but you know, I, I, I'm 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 personally happy to wear my mask, you know, if it makes others feel comfortable. But I'm glad to be seeing the end of the pandemic. That's how we're all feeling. Thank you very much for your insight on this. I think for every parent of young kids right now who, uh, beyond the obvious uh, stresses that we've all been through, um, we're hoping there's a light at the end of the tunnel. And, you know, we're all going to have to, you know, play a little catch up, especially with younger kids, toddlers, kindergarten age kids, uh, to get them back on track. Thank you very much for your insight today. Thank you very much. Absolutely. It's great to have you. Uh, Professor Kathy Rastel from the University of London. I want to mention an email I got from a listener. I started reading it yesterday morning. It's a long one, but she's a nurse and fully vaccinated and boosted. She's in her late 30s, young mom, and um, she's against, right, uh, isolating and the quarantining of not just not just letting unvaccinated um, healthcare staff go, but just the isolation period. And it's become a massive issue. And she says... It's ridiculous that she gets painted as anti-vax. Like anti-vax is not against a mandate specifically. Anti-vax to me means you don't want the vaccine for whatever reason. I I disagree with your premise, especially as an adult. It's it's a trickier situation with kids and teens and even college students in their early 20s. Okay, for that booster, that is for that booster. But I see this headline in the Ottawa Citizen. I know our next guest saw it, too. Patients left in hospital requests unfulfilled as home care staffing crisis worsens. The hospital numbers are a bit deceptive because patients are ready to leave. There's nowhere to take them. There's no PSWs. There's no nurses. You wait forever. I went through this with my father-in-law. We went waited forever for a long-term care spot. All of these are issues. Dr. Zane Chagla is kind enough to join us, infectious disease specialist. I know you amplified that particular situation as well, and it's hard to get the real number, but this is a massive, massive problem. Staff, it's staffing, 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 isn't it? Yeah, absolutely. And, and unfortunately, the buck stops at hospitals a lot. You know, as you, you talked about your story about long-term care, well, you know, it's even harder now to get patients in a long-term care because some of those homes are in outbreak and so are well understaffed, so can't take a new admission. You know, patients that are able to recover at home with a little bit of home care can't get home care because of the fact that they're COVID positive and, again, that uh, um, staffing in home care is so limited. So they, again, have to stay in hospital. Patients who need follow-up blood work within a week who are COVID positive may not be there because of their COVID, again, may not be able to get it because the lab won't let them in. Uh, and uh, and again, you know, that means they have to stay in hospital. So, yes, absolutely, there are COVID patients that are in hospital because they need to be hospitalized. But all of these other pressures are building up on hospitals, too, making discharges harder and harder by the day. And And unfortunately, that means our hospitalizations will keep going up. The number in the article, yeah, so it's not people constantly getting sick and having to be hospitalized from Omicron. Of course, there's some of that. This is the number that jumped out to me, Dr. Chagla. Before the pandemic, home care agencies were able to get to 96% of requests to give patients in-home care. Province-wide now, we got, we've got we dropped to 56% from 96. In Ottawa, it's 36. And I bet you Toronto, Hamilton, the, the bigger the city, the more you're going to have an issue right now. Absolutely. And it's, it's, it's not even the patients that can get home care are often getting it a different way. I give patients intravenous antibiotics as part of our, our care as infectious disease physicians that can be done in the, ho- in the home. The problem is, is, you know, now when nursing care is so limited, a lot of these patients are being told, you know, come into these clinics to get your antibiotics rather than it getting delivered at home, which for vulnerable patients or people with mobility challenges, with disabilities, makes it even more difficult for them. And so, you know, again, even if people are getting their demands reached, they're still not as good as they were pre-pandemic. And, you know, unfortunately, that means care delays, that means more hospitalization, that means more burden on on clinicians to make sure that patients are able to follow up and access care appropriately. Uh, And it, you know, again, puts the stress back on the system that's already stressed. The uh, the Paxlovid, we've talked about the oral antiviral drug that's meant to protect against hospitalization and death. You've been on doing it. Dr. Bogarsh has been doing it. Chop, chop. Let's go, Health Canada. We need to get this done. So now we do. What is the demand like for it? Um, are, are people actually getting it? And is it starting to work and help us already uh, push push things back the other way away from hospitalization and severe outcome? Yeah, so, I mean, thankfully, it is in people's hands now. It's been distributed to a number of sites across the province. And so, 
you know, they're trying to integrate their testing to make it. You know, there, there still is that issue of people being so jilted by what happened with testing over the, the, the holidays that the right people are not getting tested on time, right? And so there does need to be a huge amount of public education here labeling the people that are at the highest risk, those who are immunocompromised, unvaccinated, over 60, with major medical issues, to tell them, listen, you are front of the line to go get tested. Do it early. Despite all of your medical issues or the lack of a vaccine, we can still keep you out of the hospital. Um, but, you know, that needs to be put front and forward. As patients are confused about testing, and, and rightfully so. It's changed so many times over the last three weeks. Dr. Zane Chagla is our guest uh, right now. When you look at where we're at with staffing, is it getting better than it was two weeks ago? If we think we've hit the peak of cases and hospitalizations, I mean, fingers crossed, are we getting people back who were isolating previously? We know we need new hires. We know uh, just how, you know, how broken so much of the system is. But are we getting people back who've recovered either from isolating because of a close contact or I should say recovered from Omicron? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, the the staffing pressures are still there and, and no one denies it. But, you know, certainly even locally, we are seeing less staff in isolation than they were two weeks ago, even less staff than they were at the end of December, which is a good sign. I will say, though, you know, unfortunately, with schools being open and some of the rules around, you know, kids not being able to access testing in schools and then those parents that having to try to figure out if they're positive um, are, is going to create some new staffing challenges over the next couple of weeks. But, you know, for now, there is some stability. I think all of us are seeing a little bit of breathing room. Hmm. Uh, and, you know, again, the past the peak is really being felt in, in, in some of this healthcare staffing that more are available work than less currently. And, and, uh, and again, it's, it's a bit more sustainable for the, the short-term future. Are we about a week away, maybe a week today, a week tomorrow, from getting a sense of schools and, and all the debate about does it spread more in schools? Does it spread more in the community? Um, how, prote- how much more boosted and protected are the teachers when we start to see numbers? Are we a week away for that, probably? Yeah, I think so. I mean, you, you probably are going to, if transition is going to happen, it's starting to happen. Now, right? The community cases are still high. And so the odds of someone walking into a school with COVID are, you know, reasonable every day over the next week or two in that sense. So, hmm. you know, if there is going to be transmission, it's going to happen here at the high point of the outbreak. Um, you know, unfortunately, in England, we're seeing younger kids now showing up as the highest percentage positives. And so, you know, again, there is probably going to be a little bit of this. Again, it may be minimal. It may be mitigated by the controls. Um, yeah. But, you know, I think we're going to get a sense in a week or two of what the, the you know, effects of school are as compared to the societal reopening. Dr. Zane Chagla, thanks for being great for our show, great for our listeners and, and giving us some awesome insight today. Have a great day. No worries. Um, In the next four minutes, we're not going to solve racism or racism in sports or how to react to it or teachable moments. We're not going to solve anything, but we're going to update you on a story on the weekend. Um, Jordan Subban is PK's younger brother, plays defense. He was in the Leafs system for a while, plays for the South Carolina Stingrays. The ECHL has indefinitely suspended a defenseman that got in a confrontation with him, uh, verbal and physical. The concept is is that Jacob Panetta made um, a gesture with his hands like, uh, like he was scratching his underarms, supposedly like a monkey. That's pretty terrible if that was the intent. Jacob Panetta has been cut by his team and the ECHL, like we said, indefinitely suspended him. But here's Panetta's explanation as to what happened during the game. And I would like to address the incident that happened between the South Carolina Stingrays this past Saturday in the East Coast Hockey League. Jordan Sewin and I were talking in a heated manner when the linesman got between us. When the linesman was between us, I said to him, you're only tough once the refs get involved. And I did a tough guy bodybuilder-like gesture towards him. I've made the same bodybuilder gesture to non-racialized players a number of times when there have been on-ice confrontations. There is video from previous games which demonstrate this. My actions towards Jordan were not because of race and were not intended as a racial gesture. That's the explanation from Jacob Panetta. Let's go around again. This is a tricky topic, but I think we all look and go, it's a shame we're even having to have these conversations. But Shiba Siddiqui, what's your, what's your thought on the story and the explanation from the player here? Um, 
first of all, the fact that we're even having this conversation, I think, is very specific to hockey culture and where it's at. So that's something we need to take in. This is this is how bad of a reputation hockey has. And you have a young hockey player. I want to point that out. Oh, to I audience. have a whole family of hockey players, yeah. and they are all little brown kids on the ice, right? So that this in itself scares me because some of them are pretty good and it makes me nervous. Mm -hmm. But that being said, I did hear uh, Jordan's, or sorry, Jacob's explanation. I saw the entire video online last night and I thought, I started thinking, okay, you know what? Maybe he's, maybe that's what he was doing. He was just trying to, he, he made this, this, whatever he did with his arms and he was just trying to show him that he was going to fight. He wanted to fight him. That's what he was doing. Maybe it's possible. You need to talk to the other players. You need to talk to the refs. You need to see who was there and what they saw. And then I went back and I looked at the video again after seeing that and it doesn't line up. Yeah. The timing of what he's saying doesn't line up with the gesture that he made. So I don't know. This guy's whole career is on the line, and it's a very emotional video, and he's he's in tears by the end of it, and it's very heart. It seems very heartfelt, and so I, I was doubting. I'm like, okay, maybe you know, maybe that's what he meant. But if you go back and look at that video, it doesn't line up. Dave, it's one of those unbelievably impossible things um, to weigh in on. The, the the team moved right away. The the you know the the Jacksonville Iceman did cut the player, but mm -hmm. the quote's very telling, isn't it? Though the investigation and review is ongoing at the league level, we will be releasing the player involved effective immediately. Well, those two things don't match up. Maybe they've talked to their teammates, and the teammates have been forthcoming and honest. But but sometimes you know we you get that tribe mentality where you know he's your friend, he's your brother, yeah. he's your teammate. You're going to back him and say he didn't do anything wrong and we don't know whether he did or not well there was some indication i think it was pk suban who put out uh, mm -hmm. a tweet yesterday and and sort of a, a mini statement saying that the players on the ice from your own team didn't back you up at that time so they know you know sort of what kind of person you are so i i don't know this player i've i've never yeah. seen him play in the past all i'm uh, reacting to is the video that was shown of of him doing it and it is pretty interesting that the team sort of pushed him away right away and said, we're, we're distancing ourselves uh, from that player right now while the investigation is ongoing. But it was very, very swift. Um, so so maybe they do know a little bit more here that we're not privy to. Like, Gord, I think he'd need a referee, a team. He'd need a player from, from Subban's team to step up and say, look, I know what and then you're and then you're counteracting how Jordan Subban perceives this and feels about it. It's an unwinnable situation to speak up, but we got to make it possible to to say what people saw. Yeah, and I think the maybe the, the two of them have to sit down and and have a heart to heart and see if if he is sincere and uh, he didn't mean to do it, but also you have to in this day and age go over your own actions with a fine-tooth comb. Like will this be misconstrued if he was in fact doing the bodybuilder pose? You have to take that into consideration now more than, you know, previous generations they even have to. But you have to have that in the back of your mind. What I say and do will be uh, mm -hmm. recorded and watched over and uh, more so than, than ever before. Yeah. And whether it's on a grand scale or on a microaggression scale, you have to be accountable for yeah. what you say and do. It's the bottom line. Very happy to have our next guest on. She's co-host of the Bad and Bitchy podcast. The last couple times we've talked to her, she was out in Alberta, but has returned to the uh, um, you know meteorological, even no matter what your views are on passports and mandates, the meteorological hellscape that is Ontario, specifically Ottawa. Why does she live there? Erica Eiffel uh, joins us now. Why don't you? You've lived in the states. You're out in in Alberta. A little more freedom out there. Like put that house, put that house up for sale and cash in. <laughs> And live where? In I don't Ontario. know. I, well, I don't you know. Maybe not in Ontario. Nova Scotia. How about that? <laughs> That's probably where I can afford. <laughs> that works for me. So you flew. What was, I haven't flown, and I bet you 90% of our listeners haven't flown, especially in the last six, eight months. You fly there and back. What What does that do for you? How How do you feel when you're, when, when you got to fill all the protocols in and you need your tests and all that? What's it like? Oh, like coming back, because Alberta is all about personal responsibility when it comes to this pandemic. So basically everything's open. <laughs> and so um, I managed not to get COVID there. That's nice. But coming back to Ontario was hell because I got caught in the storm. And so I spent 15 hours at Pearson. It was not fun. I mean, what do you do? And I have to say, why is it that an outlet is hard to find in an airport? Why? 
Oh, they you're have, talking about charging. It's impossible. It's impossible. And I'm just like, why are there pay phones and no outlet? <laughs> I don't understand this. Nobody even have quarters anymore. You used to be like put a like a credit card in. Uh, to, I used to have to make collect calls. Like I, you know. Yeah. Yeah. See, because you grew up when people still talked on the phone. Oh, I'd love to get like you. You'd have a new girlfriend. Your phone conversation is three, four hours. There's none of this yeah. texting business. Yeah. No, nothing. Of course. These kids don't know. They don't know. So oh, on yeah. the on the flight itself, what's it like? Like mask on, mask off, or are there are there are they it's harsh with protocol? Off. What are they doing? It's totally mask on. I decided that I was no longer going to fly economy. <laughs> 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 I'm over it. Like this pandemic told me. There's no need for that, okay? So I had bigger seats and more leg room and food and all the thing, except coming back, they didn't have food, which is beyond me, but whatever. Um, you get on first, you get off first. And you know what I realized when you fly premium or business class? They actually find your luggage. They find it. So like, I was on a different, so getting back to Ottawa was, was the hell part. And so... Because I guess Ottawa got hit, like, a lot worse than Toronto. Maybe not a lot worse, but worse. So um, they uh, tried to put me in economy, and I was like, oh, no, no, no. Okay. (laughs) I look back at economy. (laughs) I didn't realize, like, two seats side by side in premium is equal to three in economy. And I was just like... (laughs) I saw people scrunched up together, and I said, no, there is no mask mandate that can protect you in those circumstances, okay? So, in future, economy is, you know, who knows? That's basically what I'm saying. It's bad enough when we all look. This is not this is not discriminatory. I'm not about that. But we all glance up. We see our seat. And if we see, let's put it this way, if I see someone bigger than me in that middle seat and I'm on a window or an aisle, oh, gosh, like the armrest itself. I'm like that that dude or that lady is getting both of the armrests. She's in the middle and she's going to she's going to flex. She's going to flex it out. Like she just like she just scored a touchdown, and I'm I'm gonna be like crawl, curled up in a ball against the window, or curled up in a ball leaning into the aisle. These these seats oh. aren't big. So why don't they leave every other seat empty? Okay, just just for COVID, just leave every other seat empty. What is the problem? I guess you can't get as many people, and it's all a cost benefit analysis. But still, come on, it's these are extraordinary times. But yes, they do find your luggage, so. I come back, and there's this whole lineup of people waiting for their luggage on the carousel. It doesn't come. And I don't know what they did with people's luggage, but all I know is that I saw mine very distinctly. It was there. It had the little tag. I took it, and I left, okay? This is at, like, 1.30 in the morning. So can you imagine trying to dig through luggage at 1.30 in the morning? Like, are you for real? I I don't understand these airlines. I really don't. Remember when flying was fun? We used to be so fun. Oh, my gosh. You'd look forward to it. Oh, every second. Yeah. And people used to dress for the occasion because they didn't scrunch you in like like sardines. And we adapted a little bit after 9-11. We knew, okay, you know, we're going to – you got to take your shoes off. You got to do this. I'll I'll give you that. I'll give you an extra forty five minutes. I mean, you can be on. Like I can be honest. I have I have friends that don't look like me that are like, um, it's not as fun as you think, but we're ready for it. Like yeah, we bra- yeah. we brace for it. But uh, you white dudes, In other words, like, I have to shave please. today. Yeah, that's what that means. Yeah. I have to not look too, you know, brown. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Seriously, I mean, uh, it's it's. It's a nightmare. It's a nightmare. Anyway, that's my story. You, uh, and any anybody of any race, color, or creed on an airplane, try not to laugh uproariously to yourself. Don't cackle and and uh, <laughs> and don't start singing anything out loud because not everyone's going to understand where you're going with that. Even if you're listening to an iPod, don't start singing lyrics. 
on a moving aircraft is the best policy for anybody, I think. So these mandates, Erica, where where can we go with them? Um, you mentioned Alberta's very uh, footloose and fancy free. I mentioned New York's got a big call to make. I, you know, I understood it in the fall. I understood it. It was going to create more uptake of the vaccine. I think people wanted to feel confident when, when they went to do things again, to a restaurant, a theater, a ball game, whatever. But I don't know where, where we left off and where we can pick back up again when we reopen. What do you think? Well, I am personally going to wear a mask because I don't trust everybody else. Okay. <laughs> like, <laughs> as much as I said what I said about the unvaccinated, don't blame the individuals for structural issues. I do mean that. However, at the same time, I also don't trust everybody else to take their vaccine and do what needs to be done. Number, Well, we're all tired. We're all exhausted from the from all of these protocols, et cetera, et cetera. And um, I don't know. I, I'm going to wear my mask. I personally support a mask mandate in general. Um, you know, I, I just, I feel like everybody did a BC at one point and was like, yeah, you know, we can't really control this. So good luck. <laughs> you know what I mean? <laughs> That's what I see happen. And like, as soon as Christmas happened or like December happened, everybody in leadership gave up. I, I kid you not. Be, but but isn't so that what? because what they tried does not work? We've been doing this. Social distance. Do that. Six feet. Wear masks. Do this. Do that. Nothing's kept cases down. Not a single exactly. thing that governments have orchestrated keeps the virus. You can't stamp it out. We've realized that now. I hope, but we're still we're still running a playbook from a year and a half ago. Yeah. I I wonder about people's livelihoods at this at this point. Um, you know, especially as inflation goes up, I, I just, I, I really do wonder about it. I, I, I'm on two minds of this. Like, I think that, yeah, I'm, I personally am going to wear a mask. Hmm. Um, I don't, I don't like, I don't love vaccine mandates at this point like just judging from what you said um but mass i could i could dig a mask let me put it that way it's, i really can it's eric eiffel our guest uh from the bad and bitchy podcast so jug meat sing in this chair i mean we were ready to dig oh in on God. it last week okay. a nineteen hundred dollar rocking chair we can't judge that what alone did I say about this man okay what did i say so many i've written about this <laughs> He is an influencer first, okay? Okay, Jagmeet Singh thinks that being liked equals will somehow turn into votes, which equals power, and it doesn't work that way. And the, the funny thing is, in his quest to be liked, in his influencer status, whatever it is, um, he has lost a lot of respect, in my opinion and respect for the party. And given that he hasn't improved the fortunes of the party, he's improved his fortunes, I'm sure. Why is he there? I don't understand. This man, like, is it his wife? His wife is an influencer or something? Yeah, yeah. The, the furniture so, the furniture company makes the deal with her, and they say, yeah. you know, like how it is on Instagram, hey, just put a message yeah. out, you're in the chair, note that it's an yeah. ad. But then he doesn't he doesn't have to do it, and he's not supposed to do it, and he did it also. He did it also. Okay. So all week, or all January, I've seen very little on policy and a lot on Congratulations, new baby, great, but you know it's enough. I'm sorry, I, I it's enough now. I'm over it. Like Parliament is starting. What are your goals for this parliamentary session? I haven't heard that. What policy issues are you paying attention to? He is very reactionary, and it doesn't seem like he has a plan for anything, and it doesn't seem like he has a strategy for anything. And all we see are his TikToks and his his shout outs. And I'm over it. I'm tired. Mm. Like this country needs a real progressive party who's serious about policy, about messaging, about all of those things. And all we have here is like, 
I don't know, a, a low-rent Gary Vaynerchuk. Well, and and we got the greens starting from scratch, like just just burned to the oh. ground. Didn't 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 that happen in the last six months? <laughs> exactly. Although I question them being progressive, you know. Oh, I know. I because of Annamie you know. Paul and what? Yeah, well, like she was well, she she was not she had a few knives and put in her back from people in that party. Well, wow, you know. And now they're coming after her again with how she wasn't legitimate. Like I just. <laughs> This just sounds so bad if you think of, like, <laughs> like you're going to call your own vote illegitimate. I don't understand. I, I, I don't know where they're going. They need, they're beating a dead horse. They look vindictive, and they look like they don't know what they're talking about. And they look like, how did the liberals take over climate? From, like, the NDP and the Greens. How did that happen? Well, we know what happened to the Greens. But it happened. It did happen. It did happen. I got about I got about two minutes. Who are you happier to see lose on the weekend? Aaron Rodgers or Tom, Tom Brady? Brady. Tom. Ahead of Aaron Rodgers? Yes. Well, you know, Aaron Rodgers, I don't listen to dudes talking, you know. <laughs> <laughs> Aaron Rodgers went from a guy everybody wanted him to host Jeopardy. Everybody's like, you could bring Aaron, seems so nice and thoughtful. You could bring him home to mom. And in a year, he turned into Darth Vader. He turned into <laughs> Hannibal Lecter. You know what? I'm sorry. I find Aaron Rodgers slightly hilarious for that reason. (laughs) Everybody thought he was this good guy when he was dating Olivia Munn. We were like, oh, it's that cute, you know, until they make a cute couple. And everything was fine until he opened his mouth and said he was silent. (laughs) And I was just like, you were on for like 20 minutes. Like. I don't understand. All you have to do is make a make make an Instagram clip, and everybody's going to listen. I I don't know. I don't know. He. I didn't realize he was this entitled, but here we are. But yeah, Tom. I always. I'm always here for a Tom Brady loss. Always. <laughs> there is like. What did I say? What did I say about those Rams? Yeah, I know, I know. They're intense, man. They, they Matt Stafford. That's so. So your cow. I, I got a minute. Your Cowboys lost last week. Do you think a Buffalo Bills pain, fan is in more pain this morning than you were last Monday morning, or is it close? Um, it's close. Uh, I hope so. <laughs> they're up. They're up with thirteen seconds left. Thirteen. They won the game. How many games were decided by field goal? Three. Three. All walk-off field goals. Walk-off win Bengals. Walk-off win um, uh, 49ers. Walk-off win uh, early game Rams. Unbelievable. Never happened before. And, and, and this is the year of the underdog. I'm happy. Yeah, I know. Uh, I know. I, I really love that. Uh, I get a uh, guy writing me. I'm all for the segment when Greg Brady, T.O., and Wicked Chick link up. So we just linked. Thank you very much for being on today. Shout out to that listener. That's right. That's right. We'll we'll make him check his privilege. That's that's right. We'll make him check his privilege at the door next time he wants to interrupt our segment with a tweet. (laughs) Thanks, Erica. All right. Erica Erica Eiffel, she's awesome, uh, joining us on uh, Toronto Today. Our next guest uh, is an economics professor at X University. Uh, we love having him on for weekly chats on a Monday. And he wrote this on Twitter. Um, Dear Mr. Prime Minister, please allow trucks to enter and exit Canada and restore the supply chain. Allowing people to afford groceries is more important than the vaccination status of long-haul truckers. Thanks, Eric. What's the uh, what's the inspiration there, Eric, to speak out and be adamant about it on this particular issue when it comes to the supply chain? You know what, Greg? Uh, Economics is a social science, and it's supposed to be about making people's lives a little bit better and understanding our world. And it doesn't take very much looking and understanding that if you've been to a grocery store or you have been to a gas station or you've actually bought anything in the last year, inflation is really becoming a serious issue. It is eroding our wealth. It is eroding people's salaries. And it's eroding pretty much our purchasing power on everything we do, everywhere we go and everywhere we buy, anything we buy. The prices are up now for gas, 33% in the last year, fruits and vegetables, about 8% in the last year. And I'm all for families. I'm all for people being able to pay their mortgage and pay their rent 
and give their kids a good life. And I think that that personally is far more important than the vaccination status of truckers. We have got to, got to alleviate the problems with the supply chain. And I know that the Bank of Canada is going to raise interest rates and people are saying, well, that'll fix it. Well, you know what? On its own, Greg, that's not going to fix it. That's not going to stop the problems of the supply chain. We have got to restore the free flow of goods. But is this is this about canceling the mandate or just or are we just kicking the can down, you know, another month or so? And they've done this already. They wanted truckers vaccinated by November and pushed it back a little bit. We've seen that obviously provincially. There were there's probably a political design towards, well, healthcare workers don't need to do it by this time and long-term care workers don't need to do it by this time. It buys time. But at the same time, are are we just pushing the mandate back by two or three weeks and then running into the same problem next month? Well, that's what I'd like to avoid. I'd like someone to put their people to put their heads together and figure out what we're going to do. Is there going to be a mandate? Do we even need a mandate? I mean, what is the hill on which you're willing to die on some point? I hear this a lot about parenting. Is this the hill on which I'm willing to die? Well, you know what? I think that people in a country where some almost 40% of Canadians are about $200 away from insolvency and are, are using food banks at unprecedented numbers and walk into the grocery store and have to walk away from the fruits and vegetables section, I really, really think this is more important than whether a truck driver has the vaccination. And don't get me wrong. I'm, you know, this, mm-hmm. I'm three times vaccinated. So is my wife. So is my daughter. And my you've had COVID vaccinated and I've had COVID. So, you know, now that doesn't make me an expert, but you know, I understand that there's medical concerns and I understand the doctors and I respect them all. But Greg, I, I mean, I don't want to put it sound like I'm putting out some emotional plea, but if you'd like anything left of the economy, and if you'd like anything left of people's abilities to, to, to purchase and yeah. to have a, a consistent quality lifestyle, A, open up businesses, and B, relieve the clog in the supply chain. It is just enough. Dr. Eric Kams, our guest, uh, economics professor from X University. Is it is it simply access uh, to certain goods and supplies, not just food, or is it cost that you think most Canadians right now, rightly so, I would make the case, and I think you are too, are grumbling about? Is it access? Is it cost? It's cost, but of course, I think that things are interrelated. I mean, not everything is as simple as it seems. And it doesn't take an economist, thank heaven, to know that if you restrict the supply of goods, the quantity demanded is going to go down. The price is going to go up. I mean, it's first year economics. And while economics doesn't always hold, this time it does. So you've got to start somewhere. And I think that that getting rid of the restrictions on on goods and services coming into our country has to be a positive place to start. And I've heard people say, well, if economics works, then the, the unvaccinated truckers will lose their jobs and the vaccinated truckers will take over for them. But that's a theory called intertemporal substitution. And I'm not so sure it holds because we know that we have labor shortages. So I don't know. I don't have all the answers, but I know that this this restriction of trucking is not making anything any better. And to quote Greg Brady, not getting us anywhere closer to the off ramp. Uh, Joe Biden has put in a vaccine mandate as well for truckers in the United States. So the argument can be made. It really doesn't matter what Justin Trudeau. This is like when we wanted to travel again, spend money in the states, see U.S. relatives and friends, go to a, a Buffalo Bills game when it would have been fun to do before they were eliminated last night that was the american stopping us from doing that so you may be able to make the case that a lot of the u.s mandates affect what we do anyway it's this just exacerbates it that we've got a mandate of our own well it it absolutely exacerbates it it's what happens when you have big large cousins to the south of you that you know you you are beholden whatever the united states does you know is you know is going to have an effect on us it's impossible to think not. And so I don't think Biden's made this any better. Like I'm out of the closet on this issue. I'm not going to sit there and say, you know what, I'm done. I'm finished. COVID is done because Bruce Bruce Arthur is right that COVID's going to find a way not to be done with you. But I you know what? Doctors advocate on part of patients. I have to start advocating on the part of the economy, Greg. We have to let 
if you're gonna if you're gonna believe in capitalism, if you're gonna believe in a market structure, if you're gonna believe in in the price system, then you've got to let the thing work. And this is the hill on which I'm willing to die. We have to get rid of the restrictions on these things. It's foolhardy. It is giving families no benefit. People, if you cannot afford to feed your children, what the heck is the use? And so I'm for getting rid of any of these mandates, call them whatever you want, embargoes. Let's get goods flowing again through all of the countries and give families a chance. Let's talk universities. Uh, I sent you uh, data of economic stats on Harvard University in Cambridge, Massachusetts, which shows you they went from operating at a deficit to making a massive, massive profit since going online. There are services that they clearly don't have to provide for students when they're not on campus. Um, I don't know whether that makes a difference if professors and TAs can't claim expenses or aren't on campus, but I, I, I just look around and I go, I feel like this will be the very last COVID domino to fall is normalizing in-person learning again for universities. I think we're going to get it for kindergartners before I think I'm going to uh, that we're going to get it for, you know, third year history students or, uh, or or chemistry students. What do you think about that? Well, I think you brought up a good point, which is I think that a lot of people in the university structure have become very comfortable working at home in pajamas. And I think that that's not a long term scenario. That's not a viable way to provide higher education. It is time to get again. It's just like the trucking industry. It had a time. It may have had a place. It's it's over. We have to get professors and students back into the lecture hall and give students value added for their tuition. And I know I like that data that you sent me. It's interesting. Well, you know what? If you have a skeleton staff on a campus, if you can keep the lights out, if you can keep the heats off in part of the buildings, then, you know, it's not hard for a good chartered accountant to turn a small loss into a huge profit. And so I'm not I'm not questioning the universities and their data. What I'm saying is, is it all kind of speaks to the same thing. It is time to safely put people back into seats, whether that is the seat of a trucker or the seat of a university student. We've got to get back to normal. We've got to start living again. This is doing nobody any good to pretend it's still 2020, Greg. So how do we weed through it? How do we weed through it in any workplace? How I won't take your school, but let's say University of Toronto, $6,600 tuition. That's still for an undergrad tuition. That's still an unbelievable bargain compared to getting a university education, let alone south of the border in other parts of the planet. How do we tell university professors you're going back in the classroom and if you don't like it, I'm not going to let you work from home anymore. We, you, There might be people with legitimate fear and anxiety and anxiety disorders created from the last two years. And as to your point, there might be people that want to stay in their pajamas and don't want to put gas in their car. How do we decide who's who? Well, this is going to be, and I don't mean to deflect on the question, but this is going to be the great question coming up because at any university not just mine you have two very distinct faculty groups you have the tenured or tenure track faculty that are protected by a very strong faculty association and then you have your contract faculty that teach about half the courses in the university and it's not that QP is not a strong union but the reality is those people teach course to course term to term and can sadly very easily be let go and so now you're going to see the struggle that's going to start because you're going to have full-time faculty saying if we don't want to go back we don't have to and there's little that you can do about it and then you're going to have contract faculty saying if we don't want to go back there's little you can do about it but the university saying oh i think there's a lot we can do about it because we can on mass cancel your contracts so again i'm not deflecting the question yeah but i'm really glad i'm not a university president or provost today because i don't know how you do this i know you consult with the scientists and you consult with the doctors and you find a back to school plan that works for you and your faculty but you're right there's going to be there's going to be disputes and there's going to be people saying i cannot come back i can for mental health or physical health reasons I cannot work. And this is the part I don't know what the solution is yet. I haven't read enough or spoke to enough people. But when I find out, you'll, of course, be the first to know. Uh, I know we're always going to amplify, and, and I I don't love uh, this aspect. Um, I, I try to avoid it, but the, the loud voices get amplified. The complainers get amplified. I don't doubt there's there's high school teachers, elementary school teachers, who raise their hand and say, this is me, these are my legitimate feelings, this isn't political, I'm not trying to get rid of the Ford government, but I don't feel safe going back into the classroom. Luckily for me, and I want to gauge your household because you've got two kids also, 
Doesn't seem to be happening in my kids' schools. I got an elementary kid and a high school kid. Their teachers are fantastic. I've communicated with all of them this week. They shrug their shoulders and they're like, this is the job. We know what it is. We know how to be safe. They, we've got our three vaccines. What's it like for the teachers of your kids right now? Uh, first of all, of course, I'm married to one, so I'm biased and I'm going to get Twitter's saying, well, of course, you're going to say what I'm about to say. There's nobody working harder right now than teachers. Teachers want to teach. Professors want to profess. You know, I actually think this not wanting to go back to work in general, I think is a smaller number than people think. I think that people who are passionate about their careers and passionate about what they do and those who work in healthcare and and children care they know where they should be. They know what's best for children. They know what's best for students. And largely, I can't say enough about my my kids' teachers who are all back. Um, one's eight, one's 18, but they're all back in the classroom. My wife's back in the classroom on mass. People want to get back. So I actually think that the glass is half full. I think if we allow people, they'll find they'll they'll find their way back because they know it's the best thing for their clients, um, whether their clients are students or patients, or whether it's the insurance biz. There is nothing more important in our society than relationships, and it's time to bring them back. Not as catchy a newspaper headline. Almost all teachers feel compelled to do their job and feel safe in the classroom. That doesn't sell as many papers, but okay. (laughs) Oh, you know, Greg, I don't give a damn what sells papers. You know, people don't go into education to get rich. They really don't. I'm they sorry. Don't. Yeah, I know you get your summers off and so people are going to Twitter mm-hmm. me, but you don't go into it to get rich. You don't go into being a professor to get rich. You do it because you actually think there's a higher calling. And to do that, to make kids lives a little bit better, you got to be in front of them. There is no substitute. Thank you for all that. And thank you for saying that. And you're going to get, you're going to hear from a lot of teachers who actually back you nine out of 10, at least at minimum. Uh, Dr. Cam, thanks very much for the time today. Can you get the one teacher that I live with to stop harping me about the laundry? Yeah, I feel like that's, yeah, I know. But if you do garbage and recycling, like life's about trade-offs. You're well aware of this. You've been married as long as I have. There's trade-offs. Life is about choices. Stay healthy, Greg. Got it. Thanks so much for listening to the Toronto Today podcast. We appreciate you spending the time with us. We know there's lots of options to download, check out in the car when you're making dinner. So we appreciate you giving us the big check mark. Validates us. Thank you very much for doing that. We'll see you tomorrow.